everyone, and welcome back to the Black Lawyers Podcast. Today, we have the pleasure of interviewing former O.J. Simpson prosecutor and now candidate for L.A. County Superior Court Judge, the Christopher Darden. Looking for the latest Black legal news, Black event, Black empowerment merch, or even a Black lawyer? Then look no further. TheBlackLawyers.com is your one-stop shop for all your legal needs and Black community resources. Check us out today. Again, theblacklawyers.com. Hi, everyone. This is Jay Carter. We're back with the Black Lawyers Podcast. Today, I have the pleasure of interviewing the attorney, Christopher Darden. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. So I'm sure when people hear your name, they probably think <laughs> of a lot of things. Um, you've been a part of so many huge cases, I think, in the spectrum of Black America, but just our legal system in, 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 in general. So um, I know personally, I think I was maybe in the fifth or sixth grade when the O.J. Simpson case came out and they allowed us to actually watch the case. I still don't understand why they were letting us watch it. So I went to a really good school, but they allowed us to watch the case. Maybe they thought it was for educational purposes. I don't know. To this day, I don't know why they allowed us to watch it, but they allowed us to watch the case. So that was obviously my first introduction to you. And obviously since then you've, you know, gone from prosecution to private practice. Um, and obviously you're running uh, for a judge in LA, uh, which um, I know a lot of people are excited about. So we're definitely going to jump into what's been going on with you since private practice and being a prosecutor and a little bit more about your campaign. But before we do that, I make all guests play a round of hot topics. Uh, so you you are not exempt. Um, so the first topic, um, our dear, dear, dear DA, Fannie Willis, um, has, of course, charges against former President Donald Trump. Um, as it relates to the election. I think most people understand that that's what the charges are, RICO charged with him and some other defendants. And since then, um, it's been asked that she be uh, recused from the case, removed from the case as a prosecutor uh, because she had a relationship with, um, uh, I don't want to call it inferior, but someone in her office that was also prosecuting that case. Um, so my question to you is, you, you know, obviously you've been on both sides, you've been on the prosecution side, you've been the defense side. She's obviously a prosecutor, like you've been on um, so many years of your career. You know, if you were in that position, how would you argue that it was not a conflict of interest? And maybe just tell an audience what a conflict well, of interest. Well, you know, I wouldn't be in that position. Okay. Uh, <laughs> I, I would, you know, I would know better than to hire someone that I was. Uh, interested in or had had a relationship with. Uh, and I wouldn't be in that situation because in a case like this, I would have only appointed a lawyer with extensive, uh, uh, an extensive criminal practice and history. And he appears to only have a couple of DUIs under his belt as a, as a criminal law attorney. But, but, but that aside, uh, I, I just think it's a, a terrible mistake um, and you know what, when you, you don't appreciate the media and media intensity and how it can affect a case, uh, if you've never been in that media storm and, uh, you know, all of us, you know, myself included, uh, um, uh, the DA in Atlanta, um, you know, we all, we are, we're all naive and we underestimate, uh, the power of the press and the media, 
uh, and, and how they can turn uh, things into a real uh, circus. Yeah, a real <laughs> circus. And, 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 it has, and it has become a circus, uh, unfortunately. I mean, yeah. you know, Miss Miss uh, the DA seems to be a very capable person, capable mm -hmm. lawyer. Yes. Um, but you know, it, it is a it is a mistake that that should not have been made. Um, mm -hmm. And, but in terms and, of the conflict of interest, do you, even though it may appear to be improper and a distraction, right? Maybe for that reason she should be removed. But do you think it's a true conflict of interest as it relates uh, to his charges? Well, you know, it's it's difficult to say. I mean, you know, when is there a conflict of interest on, on, on the part of a prosecutor? It is when um, there are facts or factors or circumstances surrounding the prosecution that may show or prove or imply that the prosecutor uh, is, uh, is biased mm -hmm. against the defendant. Mm -hmm. And I don't know that, and I don't think that having a relationship with another prosecutor uh, indicates per se a bias against the defendant. I don't think that uh, the DA having a relationship with the special prosecutor uh, somehow indicates that the, uh, the DA is uh, biased against Donald Trump. Um, but sometimes it's the appearance, you know, right. an appearance of impropriety that might suggest uh, a bias on the part of the uh, of the prosecution. Um, I don't think we have that either. Now, if the DA had a financial interest in the case or in the outcome of the case, that 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 would be different. That would be different also. Uh, you know, in the Simpson case, we were all being offered book deals and all kinds of things, but nobody signed a book deal Mm -hmm. or any of that until after the case was over right, right? Uh, right. because you know i think that for me and for us that would have uh been improper mm -hmm. um, but uh you know i, I and, and i hate to see it mm -hmm. uh, i hate to see it um especially when you see someone that's so smart and capable and this yeah. kind of you know stains what she's trying to do and this is you know of everything she's known for she'll be known for this more than you never want to be known for more known for more um about your mistakes versus your accomplishments um yes, you don't yes, want to be and, overshadowed by it yes and you know and it's like anything in life if you stand up to power uh if you stand up if you uh set standards if you're different if you move differently than others there are always going to be people who want to drag you back into the abyss who want to drag you down um you know and it's uh, uh it, it's so disrespectful too in so many ways uh, you know, for uh, for the two of them both to have to get up on the witness stand and testify about their personal, private, intimate history is just um, yeah. uh, just about the worst thing that can happen, quite frankly. And, I agree. You know, and it's something, you know, it's something for all of us to avoid in the future. Mm -hmm. Definitely, definitely. I think someone will pull this play moving forward and know not to ever even, like you said, even attempt to even get anywhere near uh, a situation, like you said, um, if, if, it, if it doesn't serve anybody else, I think this will be an example for attorneys uh, moving forward about having personal relationships in the office, right? Sure. Um, so yeah, no, I appreciate your your perspective on that. Uh, moving from Atlanta to New York, um, we have celebrity defendant Jonathan Majors, who was a big TV star, Marvel, Marvel, Marvel star, Creed star, almost like, like you said, he did all this great stuff, and in five seconds, it was almost taken all away from him uh, yeah. because of the fight he had with his girlfriend. Um, obviously, you know all about celebrity defendants. Um, so right now, 
he is attempting to overturn the verdict. So they haven't sent, you know, he was, um, for viewers that are listening, he was found guilty of reckless assault and harassment, the, the smaller charges, not the higher charges he was charged with. So they didn't charge, he wasn't found guilty on everything, uh, but he was found guilty on some of the things. And so, you know, as far as he was concerned, he showed a videotape of him being chased by his aggressor. So I think he thought that was the slam dunk that would allow him to be completely free of this mess. And I think obviously some people agree with him. And so at this point, I mean, he's presented a tape where he's not the aggressor and some additional things. What can you really present, again, on a procedural level to well, overturn a vi verdict? Like how much does it take for a judge to say, you know what, this verdict wasn't right. Let's try this case again or dismiss it. Well, you know, there has to be error, error committed on someone's part, either on the part of the judge or the prosecutor or perhaps uh, even even defense counsel. Uh, one very uh, um, strategic and effective approach to getting a, a, a conviction set aside is the discovery of new evidence, new evidence that could not have been discovered before, but which had it been presented at trial, uh, the outcome of the trial might have been different. Uh, that's one way. Another way is if the court uh, uh, gave uh, erroneous jury instructions or erred uh, uh, in some of its pretrial or motion in lemonade rulings, uh, if the judge ruled in such a way that it unfairly uh, deprived uh, Mr. Majors of a, of a defense. Another uh, pathway might be if the prosecution withheld exculpatory evidence. They have a duty under Brady v. Maryland to provide the defense with all the evidence uh, especially any evidence that might point to innocence. And so if the prosecution has gotten called holding on to exculpatory evidence, uh, that is also a very uh, a fruitful approach to uh, setting aside the, the uh, conviction. And of course, finally, one could always argue that the evidence is insufficient and that the jury got it wrong. And the trial judge uh, prior to sentencing generally is in a position to rule on that specific issue. It's not an easy uh, uh, task and, and and convictions are rarely overturned, uh, especially immediately after uh, trial. So um, yeah, it's, it's a tough one. And about the, the video of the uh, alleged victim chasing him yeah. and the argument that the alleged victim is the aggressor, uh -huh. you know, one moment you can be the aggressor, and, and it's true in the criminal law, the next moment you can also be the victim, depending on how events turn out. Um, you, know, you can be the aggressor, you can stop your aggression, you can denounce uh, the apparent assault that you were intended or were trying to make, uh, and you can withdraw. And then if your initial uh, so-called victim be can become an assailant and then attack you and, give you the and it gives you the right to defend yourself. And and now the the initial victim is now the second assailant, and now he's in custody yeah. for a jury, and she yeah. isn't. Um, yeah. You know, uh, you know, trials are such living, breathing animals. I always tell people, you know, you know, we have a great case. We do. We should win. Yes, we should. Will we? I don't know. <laughs> I hope well, this so. That's why they put it in the retainer agreement. We do not guarantee results. I always look at that right. part of even my retainer agreements. I'm like, I cannot get, I can hope and I can present and do my best. But yeah, 
I think that's why I stayed away from criminal law. I always felt like I would feel guilty if someone got a guilty verdict and I did everything I could do and they still got the guilty verdict. I think I would beat myself up. So never went down that path, but thank God for people like you that, that have done it. Um, so yeah. Uh, so what do you, yes. Thank, thank you for playing this round of hot topics. You answered the questions exactly the way I wanted you to, because I know our audience sometimes bicker over, mm -hmm. um, areas of law some know the law a little bit better than others and so it's it's always refreshing to get like a real prosecutor a real criminal defense attorney that's lived it um to give that give that perspective um so let's jump into your questions because this is actually why we're here um who were you before you became a lawyer so not law school not a who were you before because i'm sure a lot of people don't really know who you were before well you know back in the uh back in the 70s if you had asked me that i i would say well i i was just a ditty from the city you know <laughs> um you know i grew up in richmond california and in, in northern california went to public school one of eight children uh you know my my father was a laborer my mother uh, having eight kids at a at a young age uh um, stayed home uh, most of our our childhood, and you know I, I didn't grow up with a silver spoon in my mouth. Uh, me and my sisters uh, were the first uh, in our family, the first generation to go to college. Um, so you know, um, you know, I was just a kid from Richmond, I was just, just a ditty. Just a ditty. Okay. So how did the kid that's just a ditty say I'm going to go to law school? What made you? Was there a moment? Was there a mentor? What what happened when you said, "Okay, I'm gonna go to law," because it's expensive well, and it's hard. So, well, you know, I you know I was confused and I didn't know what I wanted to do. And I was confused about everything going on around me. It's 1974, uh, you know, when I graduated from high school. But around 1972, the Vietnam War is about to end, and I'm watching my big brother's friends come back from Vietnam with PTSD uh, as amputees. Uh, and the like, and I'm I'm just, you know, you know the world is a mess, and and I'm trying to figure out exactly what I'm going to do, and um, I've been reading books, you know, I read lots and lots of books when I was young and when I was a teenager, and I started to you know read about the FBI, I started to read uh, true crime. And at the time, there were political trials going on or that had just gone on involving Black Panthers and militants and Angela Davis and, and all of these trials. And I, and I would see the lawyers. I would see Melvin Belli. I would see these lawyers who represented the militants, uh, who represented the civil rights leaders, who, who represented those that got on those, those buses and trains and went down south. Uh, you know, I'm seeing all of these people in books and news and, and, and I, I came to admire the lawyers. Mm. Uh, they were more than just lawyers. They were activists. They were saviors uh, in a way. And, and I wanted to be like them. Mm -hmm. I wanted to be like them. Interesting. Interesting. You know, you don't look a day past 45. So when you <laughs> say, when you say, being, I'm like, is that, I'm like, wait a minute, that doesn't sound right. Um, no, that's really interesting that, like you said, you're, sometimes it's, some of people naturally just like to argue or mediate and always like, oh, I've always wanted to be a lawyer, but sometimes it'd be something in your environment that is that pivoting turn. Um, when you get to law school, what is your favorite law school class? Well, 
my favorite law school class is probably a tie, and this is going to be a little strange, a little different. Okay. Evidence, evidence. Yeah, that's not and, and and yeah. land use, evidence and land use, uh, urban planning, huh. the law surrounding urban planning and land and real estate. Uh, I was really fascinated by that. Um, but but you know I became fascinated too with the uh, you know the rule against perpetuities and and uh, here and the hearsay rule. I just thought that evidence was uh, just an amazing concept, and I had a great great professor uh, at the time. So uh, well, I would have I would have guessed evidence because yeah. you're a very strong prosecutor, um, but not land use. No, I don't think I would have guessed guessed that. Well, I always ask. Most interested to hear what my my. My guests are gonna say. I always feel like I can guess it. Uh, sometimes I'm right, sometimes I'm wrong. But no, I can I can definitely see evidence for sure. Mine's was contract. Well, well, see, these were you know, um, these were electives. These were in the second and third year of law school. Right. You know, it wasn't that grind of torts contracts and right. you know, and that grind we all have to do in the first year of first law year. school. It's just mm -hmm. awful. No matter what the course would have been in the first year of law school, it would have been <laughs> awful, and it would not have been You're just trying favorite. to survive. I know. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I know. Speaking of surviving, as you know, less than 5% of lawyers in the in the U.S. are Black. That number has not really changed in the last 20, 30 years, unfortunately. Did you face any discrimination while in school? Like, were you like one of a few? What, what law school did you go to again? And did you ever feel that way at any point? Well, you know, I went to Hastings uh, College of the Law, University of California Law School in San Francisco. I had also applied to the uh, Martin Luther King Law School, the law school at UC Davis. Um, and, uh, you know, the Bakke decision, uh, the Bakke case came out of UC Davis. And so it's 19, uh, it's 1976, and, and we're hearing from BALSA uh, all over the, the country that, hey, if you're going to go to law school, now's the time to go because this time next year, uh, you may not be able to go because of the end of affirmative action. Uh, in graduate schools and the like. And so uh, I was, I thought about Davis because it had an undergraduate campus, but it seemed to me at the time that the percentage of African-American students flunking out of the first year was something like 50%. Wow. So I, knew, I, I knew I didn't want to go into that buzzsaw. Right. And so, uh, so I chose Hastings and I tell you, Hastings was an interesting place at the time. The first year class uh, consisted of uh, um Five hundred mm -hmm. wow, students yeah. and uh, 125 students in each uh, section, and roughly 20% uh, of those students were uh, people of color. And even at Hastings, uh, after I got there, I was told that you know, approximately half of those uh, students of color, particularly African American, Latino students, uh, half would uh, flunk out. So it was very segregated in a way. Every Everyone kept to themselves and, and individual groups based on ethnicity would surround themselves with each other. So if I walked into the cafeteria at 12 o'clock, there'd be a table and there would be uh, Chinese American students. There's another one, Japanese American students, uh, Latinos, uh, uh, Blacks. Uh, you know, everybody would be uh, in their own little pocket, uh, segregated you know, from everything else. And and in law school, I never felt appreciated. I never felt welcome. Uh, I never felt in law school that anybody uh, was really on my side, you know, other than, you know, the, the uh, other students I, I studied with. 
Um, it was a very, it was a very lonely place. And, and, uh, you know, you, you do feel we were made to feel, I was, I was made to feel as if, uh, I didn't deserve to be there. I hadn't earned the right, that I hadn't met the standard and that my being there, um, uh, was only for show mm. and for nothing else. Well, I'm sure again, because um, that percentage, that statistic hasn't changed. A lot of a lot of black law students um, feel that way. And so that's why I always ask that question because, you know, sometimes people are like, oh, it's 2023, it's 2024, it's fine. I'm like, not really. A lot <laughs> has oh. not changed. And we do have uh, BALSA, if you're listening, BALSA is the Black Law Student Association. There are associations and things that try to help. But yeah, yeah. it'd be a lonely feeling. Um, but obviously you got through, you graduated, you passed the bar, you're, mm-hmm. you're a prosecutor. And yeah. in comes O.J. Simpson's case, <laughs> right? Which I'm sure you knew from the very beginning would have a lot of that media stuff that you were talking about with um, D.A. Fannie Willis. Um, that's the only question I have regarding that is, would you have done anything differently? Well, you know. Um... Feel free to say no. Feel free to say, nope, I would do everything completely the same. Feel free, but if there's if there was anything you think you could change that maybe would have maybe just changed the outcome. Well, you know, I give good radio and I give good TV, so you know, I I you know I I help provide Perry Mason moments and TV shows that are otherwise blah blah blah. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, <laughs> that's one way to put it, right? Um, you know, I was in over my head. And I was in over my head because this wasn't the kind of thing that I was really interested in. Mm-hmm. And I didn't pay attention to uh, all the media uh, coverage. Uh, I didn't appreciate the media circus until I entered the ring. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, you know, I was a, I was a country lawyer from Richmond. Mm-hmm. I uh, never uh, wanted to be in the media. It was never part of my my dream mm-hmm. and uh and i just wasn't prepared for it i was mm-hmm. overwhelmed by it and undermined by it and when we say would i've done anything different if i hadn't if i knew at the beginning what i know today i never ever would have gotten involved wow. that's something i would have done different it just well, changed you know what? for better life. or worse it's still a part of your legacy right yeah, um yeah. and i know and i know you're like huh I don't want to talk about this because I was like, I'm only going to hit him with maybe one question about OJ. I'm sure he's so sick of t- talking about OJ. But no, it's a part of your legacy for better or worse. I mean, I don't think regardless of the outcome, right, because we can't predict outcomes of any case, no matter how well you tried or even if you paid attention to everything in the media. I think attorneys, if you can stand on, you did everything you were supposed to do. You did the best that you could do. I mean, that's really all you can stand on at the end of the day. Yeah, it sucks. to lose. Nobody wants to lose, right? Uh, especially on such a high profile platform and I think this is what what you were kind of speaking to with uh DA Fannie Willis um but yeah celebrity definitely plays a part the minute it's any even if it's celebrity adjacent it it the the case literally takes on a new thing even Young Mm -hmm. Thug with YSL in Atlanta you have Tory Lanez with California with Megan Thee Stallion all these cases turned into circuses not even really about what happened uh, because of the individuals involved. Um, but something that did come out of the case, um, Judge Ito, who, was, who presided over uh, the O.J. Simpson case with you, he is backing you as yeah. um, uh, as 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 the seat that you're running for now. Tell 
us more about the seat you're running for, why you're running for it, and like maybe what a voter should know about your platform and perhaps why they should even vote for you. Well, I think, you know, that first of all, they should vote for me because of my experience. I passed the bar first try in December of 1980. And I've spent 16 years as a prosecutor, more than 25 years as a civil rights attorney. Uh, attorney and uh, um, I've spent uh, five years as a law professor, four as a full-time associate professor of law. I've been teaching criminal law and administration of justice classes at Santa Monica Community College for the last six and a half years. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, I've sent people to prison uh, for murder and I've gotten people out of prison for murder. Mm -hmm. I have been on both sides of the courtroom. And, and in, in between all of that, I've studied the law intently. Uh, no other candidate running uh, for the court uh, this election season has anything close to the experience that I have. Mm -hmm. And, you know, with experience comes wisdom, I think. You know, I've seen the law evolve uh, over the past 40 years. I was here before the three strikes law came into effect. You know, I know what L.A. looked like before. I know what it looks like 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 now. I think I know what kinds of judges are needed right now, uh, are needed right now, because we're in this place where uh, there is chaos in the law. There is a crisis in the criminal law in California, I think, and particularly in Los Angeles. Are we going to go forward with the reforms or not? If we are, we need judges who believe in reform, who are progressive. I believe in reform and I'm progressive. At the same time, I'm not an idiot. I've watched the last 44 years uh, in terms of what has happened. I've seen crime. I've seen the some of the most violent, horrific things one human being can do to another. I, I have an understanding of, of what a case is worth and how a defendant ought to be sentenced. Mm -hmm. uh, I've always had a sensitivity to uh, criminal defendants who appear in court who are clearly uh, experiencing some type of psychiatric uh, issue or mental health issue. I, I've seen the veterans come in and I, I, I in drug court and I, and I applaud those things. I think we need to expand even further. You know, I've seen defendants and represented some clients who came through the foster care system. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, that is a whole different kind of trauma. Mm -hmm. and, um, and and it seemed like almost every time I ran into uh, a case involving a young woman, for instance, for prostitution or, or, or drug possession, uh, suffering from addiction, so many times in talking to that, that person, I found out that they had come through foster care. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I think that there are a whole lot of other people uh, other groups that need to be uh, paid attention to uh, mm -hmm. in the court system. And, you know, and I want to do that. I want to help expand the current uh, judicial model to include uh, social workers, uh, uh, psychiatric uh, workers, and, and give people an opportunity when possible uh, to, to rehabilitate themselves, to take advantage of, of, of social services. Um, you know, I mean, we see what happens when folks don't get what they need to adjust and to, to survive and to function, you know, in, in this in this society, in concurrent society, and what we see is we see them in, in, in jail. And I, and I want to stop this prison pipeline. Mm -hmm. Everybody shouldn't go to prison. I mean, I existed in this criminal justice system where, where if you had a strike, 
from 10 years ago, but now you were in possession of a single rock of cocaine because you were addicted. You know, the, this, the district attorney was demanding that you do 32 months in prison. That was the base sentence, 32 months and, and serve 80% of it, of the 32 months. That's the criminal justice system that we are, are evolving from. And I'm not talking about 20 years ago. I'm talking about six or seven, five or six. Um, you know, we, we've got to get beyond that. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the criminal justice system shouldn't just be about punishment. It also has to be about um, uh, 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 rehabilitation, and and at the same time, you know, you know, somebody asked me, well, you say, Darren, you want to, you want, you want to follow reform. You're progressive, but what about the old stuff? Well, there are elements of the the old way we used to do things that have to come come with us into the future, and that that includes community safety. We have to be aware of community safety, and we have to give victims an opportunity to be heard. And you know, these are the things that I believe in. And these are the things that I hope and expect uh, will be focused on and implemented in, in my court. Uh, now, there are some folks that need to go. You got to go. You got to go. Yeah, some, some, look, some people need to sit down for a little bit. Well, you know, that's a good segue to a follow-up question. And then I only have maybe one or two more questions for you. Um, what are your thoughts on that? Even if somebody did it, right? Because you've been a, a, a defense attorney. So it's beyond the big guilty or not guilty that everyone is still entitled to a good defense, even if they did it. And I know some people can't really wrap their mind around that. Yeah. Um, what does that mean to you that, you know, they still are entitled to a defense, even if they did it? Well, you know, I mean, you know, it, 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 this is all, it's all in the constitution. It's all wrapped up. In the Constitution, and um, you know, you study criminal law and you study criminal procedure, and you read about the Scottsboro case, and you read about these uh, nine black uh, teenagers in 1931 or so uh, who have a fight with some white teenagers, and the sheriff comes, and then two white girls say, "Hey," and they raped us too, and these kids are all arrested. They're ages 12 to 19. They're in Alabama, Scottsboro, Alabama. The Klan's got the jail surrounded. The National Guard has to be called out to save these kids from being lynched and taken from the uh, the jail. And you know, and 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 the kids are arraigned on on rape, which carries a life sentence in Alabama at the time. And the trial is set for six days later. And what happens six days later? Nobody shows up. No local attorney. No attorney in Alabama at that point, will represent these defendants, these uh, young uh, Black kids. And, and finally, a lawyer shows up from uh, another state, Tennessee, I think, and he's a real estate lawyer. Then an older lawyer, probably old like me, shows up, and he hadn't tried a case in decades. And they show up to try to uh, defend these, these boys who all get convicted. Cases are overturned in the Supreme Court because ineffective assistance to counsel. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, you got two lawyers represent nine defendants. And, you know, the lawyers on the first day said, judge, I just met my client. The judge said, we're putting the jury in the box. Uh, but, you know, but the point being, you know, historically, we have been deprived of our right to counsel, of our right to be uh, to a, a, a vigorous defense, to our constitutional rights. And, and for me, um, you know, I'm a true believer. I am a true believer in due process. Mm -hmm. And uh, to me, uh, I don't think I'd sleep at night mm -hmm. if I knew that there was someone sitting in a cell somewhere 
uh, not represented because uh, the guilt had already been determined even before the jury was put in the box. Um, you know, people criticize me about the people that I've represented or even prosecuted. Mm -hmm. And, you know, OJ had a right uh, to a vigorous defense and the best counsel he could get. Mm -hmm. And so does everybody else. Mm -hmm. Yes, yeah, so we, we know about else. we know about the uh, Nipsey Hussle shooter. At one point you were representing him and obviously you decided, you know, death threats aren't worth it. Um, but even him, um, right? Well, everyone, well, everyone is entitled to a defense and a lawyer, um, even if they're pleading guilty. They still, they still need a lawyer. And they I are, think right. people missed that point. I think they were so passionate about who was killed. They they forgot the point that like, well, he still has the right to walk in here with an attorney. That doesn't that doesn't change that constitutional right. So, you know, it's just me, a different way of looking at it. Yeah, and let, and let me say something to you about that, if I can, sure. um, that I've never really said in public before. Now, I'd gone to see Eric Holder the night before he went to court. I decided not to take the case. When he appeared in court that afternoon, uh, the following day for arraignment, I was at the Fox Hills Mall um, charging my Tesla. And I got a call from the court and they said, why aren't you here? And I said, I'm not retained. Mm -hmm. And the judge got on the phone and said, well, he says you're his lawyer. And I said, well, I'm not retained. And the judge basically asked me to do a favor, appear in court, arraign the defendant, and that you know I could get off the case. And you know, once the uh, public defendant was up and ready, and, uh, to take it over. And so I did that favor. Drove down there. I appeared at court. I entered a plea of not guilty and all hell broke loose. And then I made yeah, a yeah. few other, I made a few other appearances after that. But you know, I uh you know I got to a point where I'd been threatened so much and and, and I and I read all the vitriol and all the on the internet and you know it was a green light on me and a green light on him. I mean I got to a point where um now it went beyond me just doing the judge a favor. Mm -hmm. Now it became, for me, a personal and professional issue. It became a constitutional question. Does this guy get a get a trial? Does he does he get a lawyer? Mm -hmm. uh, is he only going to be allowed to be defended by white lawyers? Right. Uh, right. You know. Right. Um, you know, we as a community need to protect this right. This right is more important to us, perhaps, uh, historically than any. Than, than, than many others, the few others. Uh, you know, we're the ones who are always the victims uh, mm -hmm. when criminal defendants are denied uh, good lawyers. And, you know, you see cases all the time, death penalty cases. Your Honor, my lawyer slept through half the trial and the U.S. Supreme Court says, uh, too bad, <laughs> right? <laughs> too bad. Uh, you know, um, you know. No, I, for I, sure. For sure. I, I, no, just think, I, I just think I hear your prayer. sentiment. I hear yeah, your sentiment. Y'all sure. need to stop hating on me about. <laughs> um, <laughs> you hear, you know. hear that? If you're listening, don't yeah, hate yeah. on him for all his work. Well, here's my yeah. final question to you. Sure, what sure. do you want to be remembered for? Wow. I don't know that I want to be remembered by anyone except uh, the people I love and the people that love me. Um, uh -huh. You know, but what I do you never, want them to remember you for? I know you have a daughter that's in law school. I know yeah, a couple yes, of things about things about you. So what do okay. you let, let's forget the public. Let's mm -hmm. let's say your loved ones, the people that love you the most. What do you want to be known for? Well, you know, when my father died about five years ago, one of the last conversations I had with him, he asked me, he said to me on his deathbed, um, 
as a father, did I do okay? Uh -huh. What he asked me. He said before I answered, he said, because I know I wasn't right all the time, but I did the best I could. And uh, I hope my children uh, remember me uh, as having done the best that I could uh, under the circumstances, because I have five kids and they're all highly intelligent and they're all beautiful, round, brown skinned human beings who are um, just so intelligent and just so worthy of all the good things life can bring. Uh, I, I just hope that I'm remembered by them as a, a loving father who, who did the best. Okay. Well, we are out of time, but that is the best way to wrap up this interview. Thank you so much for joining the Black Lawyers Podcast. We hope to have you on in the future, perhaps as the sitting judge. Um, you can find out more information about his campaign. What is your website? Christopher Darden, F-O-R-Judge.com. Christopher Darden for Judge. Great. Thank you so much, Christopher, uh, Attorney Darden, and we wish you well. Thank you for taking the time to interview with us. Now for our Black Excellence Moment for the Week. Our Black Excellence Moment of the Week goes to Delegate Don Scott Jr., who is a Democrat from Portsmouth, Virginia. He made history as the state's first Black Speaker of the House of Delegates. So a big congratulations to him. Even in 2024, we have a lot of firsts still, um, but this is definitely a, a huge accomplishment. And so we want to congratulate him and his whole team. Don't forget to visit theblacklawyers.com when you need an attorney. We are happy to connect you to a lawyer in all areas of law, no matter what type of case you have. We look forward to serving you. Thank you for tuning in to the Black Lawyers Podcast. This is your host, Jay Carter. Until next time, please follow us on all our social media handles at the Black Lawyers Podcast.